The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. And on today's show, we have another great guest. I always say that they're you know great, and I think they're all great. So I'm not lying when I say that to you. But we have a gentleman, and his name is Dr. Keolu Fox, and he is a associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. He is the first Native Hawaiian with a PhD in genomic studies. He also is involved in a couple of very important organizations, one of which he founded called the Native Biodata Consortium, NBDC. It's the first nonprofit led by indigenous scientists and tribal members. He's also involved in an organization called Variant Bio, which works with drug companies, and we'll talk more about that today. He is a technologist uh, in his own words, and I think you'll find every word of that to be true. He is an indigenous futurist, which is a term that I really loved. And during our conversation, he's going to talk a little bit about the importance of having a more diverse genomic database and an ability to have, um, when we do clinical trials or genomic research, something that's much bigger than just the Eurocentric version that exists today. He talks a little bit about the future, and then, of course, we get to find out about his probably obvious but amazing album choice. So with that, I would say grab your favorite beverage, have a seat, listen in, and as always, we always appreciate comments, so feel free to reach out. I'm talking today, as I mentioned up front, to uh, Dr. Fox, uh, Keolu Fox, and he is the first person that we have ever sourced from National Geographic magazine. I will say Mallory McLenathan on my team was reading, found you, found there are several articles that you've uh, been interviewed for in National Geographic. And it's about a very important topic that we'll get into in a minute. But first of all, I want to welcome you to the show. I'm thrilled that we're able to do this. We're both in the California area, although you're in La Jolla. I'm up here in the Bay. Um, So Dr. Fox, thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a it's an honor. Thank you for the platform. Of course. Well, the first thing I want to get into is I always like to know the why. Mm-hmm. So all of our guests in some way, shape, or form are involved in healthcare, uh, or in your particular case, the genomics flavor of healthcare, right? Which I would argue is a broader category, but d- dramatically impacts healthcare. So I always love to know the why. What got you setting, you know, heading down this path in the first place? Mm, you know, it's a great question. Some of it is serendipitous, random luck. Some of it is kind of uh, indoctrination, you know. Um, I've had so many different influences in my life in that sense. Uh, I would say, though, one of the major ones is the fact that my aunt, Leslie Koolihua Foxleva, is a colonel or a retired colonel now in the U.S. uh, public health corps. So I actually grew up in the healthcare system in really remote indigenous places all over the world since I can remember. And that's probably the first time I ever observed uh, like real inequities and like the power of point of care technology and 
the way we deliver healthcare, but not just the kind of like distribution of resources and how there you have unmet needs in a lot of communities that are rural, but also the the hesitancy to participate and what the the R word research brings with it, the legacy, the history, all of those things. I was fortunate enough to experience on the ground level. I hate it when people say the field because I'm like, what do you mean? My my ranch, my neighborhood? <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. Uh, so as a Hawaiian person, you know, there's how that the rubber hits the road on the ground level in our communities. And then many, many, many other instances, you know, growing up, I grew up in all over the place, Alaska, uh, Washington, D.C., directly get to have the Washington Post every morning, get to get a direct pulse on health policy, East Coast, West Coast, Indian country. So I've, I've, uh, yeah, I've had, I've had this kind of experiential knowledge since I was a kid. Well, that's a great story. And I love the story about your aunt, right? Being a retired Colonel. Um, that's a interesting way in, but I also love the fact that you've been in a number of places, many of which are strongly influenced by indigenous populations. I guess I listed sort of all your accolades and what you do up front, but I do want to sort of get into like, what does a day in the life look like? Obviously you do your professoring thing, but you also lead some very important research, you know, in this space. And so, you know, you got up today. Uh, what did today look like? Oh man, today I got a, oh man, first of all, I'm in my office and it is grading midterms time for hundreds of hopeful global health students. And then it's, you know, book reviews people send you and all of the kind of quote unquote academic stuff, lots of writing. Uh, but I woke up, had my email or, you know, hit the email, right? Uh, oatmeal and then ran seven miles, went to the gym, come back, uh, more email, more writing. A lot of media stuff. I think it's really important that we, especially now more than ever, that scientists um, really dispel rumors and kind of take misinformation and disinformation head on. And then I will be buying my lovely TA's lunch today and then grading all of these exams. Um, but I think it varies a lot. Uh, one of the things I think young PIs have to grapple with and get used to is the sort of lack of time writing code and the lack of time actually doing bench experiments and the lack of time doing community-based participatory research with within community and you know being a leader and distributing uh labor and creating and developing trust with people you know we're constantly communicating i think like 70 percent of what we do that's arbitrary number is is just communicating at a really high level like if you're building uh startups you know procuring uh, financial support setting up meetings with vcs ensuring that everything goes well polishing one pagers two pagers proposals writing op-eds i mean it is varied but I think you develop those skills over time. It's just like being an athlete. You know, you you put in the work and and you iterate and you improve your product. So well, I love clearly you're a human being, right? And I think people forget that folks that are doing the work and grinding and teaching and scaling, 
there's a lot of unsexiness to it. You know, as you mentioned, oh. the email and the oatmeal becomes the exciting piece, right? Or the, the seven yeah, mile yeah. run. One of the things though that I want to dig into, because you mentioned the media and we touched on this up front, is we found out about you through this National Geographic interview. You've done a few, um, as far as I can tell. And, you know, not surprising that they're the ones that sort of found you or that, you know, helped us find each other. But in the interview, one of the recent ones, it notes that, you know, in doing your research, you discovered something unsettling. This is probably not going to shock a lot of people, but the majority of current clinical studies and genomic studies in terms of how they represent indigenous populations, it's not sort of where we want it to be, right? And I think just to take a step back, probably five years ago, very few people knew what clinical meant, right? Or, you know, even genomics. And now between the pandemic and then 23andMe, we're all experts in genomics and we're experts in clinical trial recruitment. But let's talk a little bit about sort of what you found and why it's so important for communities to have representation in these types of studies, the genomic and the clinical uh, studies. Yeah, that is a really deep, important question. A lot to unpack there, as the millennials say. So. I think it's very obvious that we're like, for example, we both live in California. You're in the Bay Area. I'm in Southern California and La Jolla right now. And when we look at the the diversity of the individuals that are included in, you know, precision medicine or the next generation of medicine and health access, it does not reflect the diversity we see every day if we were to just walk down the street in a lot of these neighborhoods. It is not a, a reflection of the full spectrum of human genetic variation, which directly contributes to predilection to disease. And so all of these things are intertwined. The fact that very few individuals from historically marginalized communities are included in you know, genome-wide association studies, large-scale screens of human genetic variation. And then on the other side, it's who's included in clinical trials uh, that actually result in creating new intellectual property and then the delivery of these drugs to combat, you know, both common complex diseases and, you know, really rare sort of Mendelian disorders, right? And so that is really, really frustrating for a lot of people. Although I think most people don't know this. And there's kind of two reasons for that. One is proximity and nepotism that exists in healthcare systems. Um, I got to see Barack Obama give a, um, a talk recently, and he was referring to our healthcare system as creaky. That is a synonym for corrupt. I mean, it is not working for us. And I think what people need to realize is that if you're scaling things up and you're optimizing everything for exponential growth and profit, diversity can still be a part of capitalism. It doesn't need to be excluded. In fact, if you include populations of people that have not been traditionally included, you're creating a whole new market. But the vast majority of people don't know that they're not being served or they're underserved. Then the second side of this or the other side of the coin, if you will, is that there is a reticence or distrust in the part of historically marginalized communities to participate in uh, various types of research studies. I mean, you can go back to the Tuskegee experiments, have a supai. Um, you know, these are just kind of classic examples that you're, you'll hear about every day in bioethics classrooms. And that, you know, two-edged sword really really creates this conundrum for how we 
uh, increase those numbers and how we like really approach increasing diversity. The approaches we've been taking are very different to others. I borrow a lot of really modern future, futuristic ideas. When we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, right, DEI, we should really be talking about diversifying equity and investments. You need to create agency and investment on people's parts as participants. So if you think about like the early days of what created Silicon Valley, Fairchild and Intel, these are some of the first companies to say, hey, listen, we want to recruit the best engineers, software engineers, uh, people who are creating integrated circuits. So what we're going to do is actually give them equity in Intel, give them equity and a stake of ownership in this, right? And I think that is a profoundly impactful, important idea in recruiting your workforce and having conversations about benefit. So we've taken that same approach, right, with companies that we've created where, yes, we want to recruit indigenous communities so that they can be a part of these studies, but also we give them equity through benefit sharing. And that has been particularly disruptive. And 23andMe is not doing this. Regeneron is not doing this. And ultimately, they will have to. They will have to bow down to equity because that is what people want. That is what resonates with people. We do not want to recapitulate other unfair, unequitable relationships that exist in other resource management situations. For example, let's compare rare earth mineral mining in the Congo versus what's going on with their neighbor in Botswana. 20 years ago, Botswana uh, implemented a benefit sharing program where they give 5% of their proceeds back to the federal government of Botswana. So that it has to go into education programs, healthcare programs, uh, PPE for people working in diamond mines. And they've gone from being one of the poorest countries in the world to one of the uh, wealthiest, best managed, best governed countries in the continent of, of Africa versus Congo, where we're just seeing this recapitulation of the heart of darkness. First, it was ivory. Then it was rubber. Now it's cobalt. They produce 75% of the world's cobalt, and people just are not in touch with the bottom of the supply chain. There is no relationship between people that are scraping cobalt with their hands out of the bottom of a, a mine, an artisanal mine. They're quite literally digging their graves because they have one uh, collapse of these artisanal mines every week. And Tim Cook and Elon Musk are over here, you know, with trillion dollar entities, and there's no economic circular feedback loop of those resources. So we took that challenge head on in the space of genomics and said, what if we actually give percentages of our royalties, revenue, and equity back to the community members that have participated in our studies in Tahiti, in Nepal, in the Faroe Islands, in Madagascar, in places where we will find interesting genetic mutations that lead to viable biomarkers and intellectual property. And it is quite revolutionary. And I'm very proud of that. Everybody knows that's my idea. Well, I love that. And I don't remember ever hearing about that. I mean, in economics, certainly, you know, giving people equity and or a stake in whatever you're doing is a no brainer because everyone wins when you all succeed. Right. So I love that model. Yeah. I think one of the things, though, just sort of walking that back is you mentioned the distrust among, you know, scientific organizations and indigenous people. And, you know, so 
maybe another example or two of building that trust. It sounds like one of them, even if you're not giving back equity, is just explaining what are you going to do with this data, right? Because I think you mentioned the Tuskegee thing. That's the one that gets cited regularly. I think there's an element of, are we a lab experiment or are you actually trying to improve our health equity and our you know livelihood and things like that? So what else would you advise in terms of like helping to build this trust between these organizations and the indigenous people or populations that you know, you're helping them sort of bring into the fold? That's a great question. I think that just with respect to something like genetic information, um, digital sequence information derived from human beings, uh, we get into a rhythm where if I write a consent form, again, that's in English or French or some colonial language, like the one we're using to communicate over this podcast, um, I can convince someone to part with their biological material by telling them certain things, blanket language, but I'm not exactly explaining what the potential use and misuse of genetic information is, am I? If I tell them I'll give them an Amazon gift card and, you know, I don't even have to give them free access to drugs that we create downstream. I don't even have to give them equity, both of which we do at Variant Bio and every other company that I'm spinning out or advise for on a scientific advisory board at this point in time. That's my agenda now. But I don't have to tell you what the potential misuse is in order for you to sign off on a consent document. And I think that's one of the biggest issues is that we're not having frank, transparent conversations about how this information could be used. Do you think people would be inclined to participate in a study if I talked about what's happening with the CCP and how genetic information is being used to create large-scale carceral states based on people's ethnicity. No, people aren't going to participate in studies. But if we change it and we make the, the narrative positive and we actually explain the process and make it transparent and we de-black box how these things work and that you're not just a subject in this study, you are a partner. That's a very different relationship. And I would also say that that type of engagement is incredible because it allows for user-led innovation as well. We get to co-design and collaborate and partner in ways that improve not only our science, but the way we create feedback, the way we approach uh, developing media, because one of the most important things is that we listen to our participants and that we let the community guide the development of our projects. And that's a very different approach again. Well, thank you for sharing that. I guess, you know, I have a question because you brought up Variant Bio. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the things that, you know, you're doing is leveraging human genetics to revolutionize advanced drug development. And I think everything you're saying makes sense, right? And we work, our company works with a lot of life sciences companies. And I think at the end of the day, I'm going to say a majority of the people that work in the space are there to ultimately help patients, help HCPs, and to move the dialogue forward, right? I think right. there's probably some intentional malfeasance, or at least historically has been, I think there's probably some unconscious bias, you know, to people sort of just having blind spots in terms of developing this, but in the spirit of collaboration and sort of helping some of the listeners, what are some things that they can do, you know, because I think the other problem, Keolu, is the fact that 
there's this concept of like, there's just too much focus on, you know, all these esoteric things. And why don't we get back to the blocking and tackling of jobs and infrastructure and all that. Mm. So how do we find that balance of doing the right thing, but helping these companies, you know, which are public companies, you know, that do need to make money while they're sort of creating these life-saving or life-changing drugs. How do we find that balance between the two? And how do you work best with them so that they understand the benefit without sort of, you know, feeling like they have to go too far down a path where the uh, stockholder is going to mutiny on them? Yeah, I think part of it, okay, that's a really, really good question. I wish we had more time to like, really, I could talk about that for hours. But I think one of the things that's going on is that we have, like, what types of stakeholders on boards for X company are we talking about? Are we talking about 23-year-old crypto billionaires? Or are we talking about established, uh, you know, more conservative investors? So the way they view economics and the, their projections and the way they view futurism is very different. Um, I think both sides of the coin, both extremes, have really valid points. It's like move fast and break shit, but also don't break everything. Because if you do, we don't have stability. You have no transition plan. You have no, right? You have no contingency plan. So um, I... You know, I really think that there is room for improvement and that we shouldn't present these types of things as a, a black and white or a binary. But the way we we approach this in terms of like an established Illumina or a thermo scientific versus um, an early stage seed startup um, is quite different. Right. And the the, the way we build programs and it's just a t they're totally different animals okay so that's that's one thing on the other end it's like if you you know if you're thinking about your board members and investors guys uh benefit sharing is 110% the future like i mean look at uh patagonia look at all of these companies that have extremely positive reputations in the media if you're not doing this you're going to look really bad it's just like natural selection and evolution. If you don't incorporate this new feature that gives you an advantage in any single economic financial market, then your company is going to go extinct. And so I'm telling you now as an indigenous futurist, if you need a benefit sharing program, shoot me an email. But I don't do hourly. It's equity only. <laughs> um, but I, I think I think it's very disruptive for all of the right reasons. And if you think about the economic feedback loops you can build and speaking to things like sustainability and a commitment to climate resilience, I mean, this is really, really a special way to move forward. Well, first of all, I want to call out, I love that indigenous futurist, right? And I love the fact that... Uh, yes. You know, people can reach you, but it's going to be, you know, they, they're going to make sure that they've got the right offer at the table, right? To If they want to tap into some of this goodness. I do want to talk about something that you mentioned in um, the National Geographic, one of the National Geographic interviews. And I won't pretend to butcher the Hawaiian behind it because it, it is spelled out, but it's called walking backwards into the future. And maybe you're willing to say it in Hawaiian because you could probably say it a lot better than me. And if not, tell us what that means. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's that's awesome that you bring that up. We love hearing our language and speaking it, and it's and it means walking backwards into the future, quite literally, and this is kind of ubiquitous, not just in um, Olelo Hawaii, that's the native Hawaiian language, but also amongst our 
brothers and sisters in French Polynesia, Maui Nui, and New Zealand, Aotearoa. And it means just taking advice from your ancestors. It's kind of like, um, what are the mistakes that we've made in the past? And let's not reproduce them. But it also means, you know, when we think about things like financial projections, I was having some beers in an Indian casino, I won't say where, and I saw somebody with a laptop and I thought it was interesting. I was like, who comes to the casino with their laptop? And this person was actually balancing the books. And what I learned through this conversation is that they're balancing the books for the next 10 generations. They're not balancing the books for quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four, et cetera. The financial pressures that exist are completely manufactured. Like that is a theoretical projection that keeps you in a specific position. But if you were to think about this as an indigenous futurist and take advice from our ancestors, you would try to perform financial projections that are generational, multi-generational. And I don't mean that bullshit that you see on the laundry detergent that says seven generations. I'm talking about actually thinking like a futurist and saying, all right, if this is a near futurism projection, and I believe that there are going to be problems with cobalt mining in Congo, and then that then there are going to be problems with deep sea mining in the Pacific in Rarotonga. And then, you know, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, how deeply are people taking futurism, right? Are you actually thinking about this beyond pleasing board members that are creating financial obstacles for you? Or are you willing to let those people go and recruit people that are way more futuristic so you are you can have a sustainable business in a world of scarcity? Are you thinking about abundance? Maybe not. Maybe you should be. Well, it's a hard one, right? And it's a hard one to balance. Um, but I like that perspective. And I thank you for giving us the explanation and for pronouncing something that I would have absolutely butchered. So Speaking of technology, right? You are a self-prescribed technologist, and I think anyone listening to this can pretty, pretty quickly figure that out, right? So let's talk a little bit about the role technology will be playing in advancing genomic studies, you know, over the next five to 10 years. I think, you know, a lot of people hear about AI, they know about all these different things, but maybe, maybe like two or three practical things that you see having a major role over the next five to 10 years, just to simplify. Yeah. And I, I want to bring this back to like ascertainment bias and the way, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And as we train the algorithms of the future, what are we training them with? And if 95% of the results that come from clinical trials are all from one population of people, you can see how we're going to be developing a brave new world of health disparities, right? We're quite literally stacking the deck against people, the least, the last, the looked over, the left out, the people who need these things the most. So when we have conversations about people like to toss around machine learning and deep learning and federated learning uh, like buzzwords, and I don't quite think they understand what that means. I don't think they've ever written a hidden Markov model. I don't think they understand the principal components that really go go into this. And, and that is deeply concerning to me. And I think on the one end, we need to educate people on what the potential of these technologies are, and then also caution people, you know, into understanding that, you know, this isn't going to be the matrix in the next decade, right? And I think that's a, a really important uh, idea. So that's just with respect to all of our um, 
learning patterns and, and algorithms. They are extremely potent and can be used and applied in a lot of different directions. But what's more important are how we're prioritizing questions that we approach with learning-based algorithms, okay? The second thing I would like to bring up are ledger systems. And I think they're really interesting also. But when I say blockchain, everyone immediately thinks of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried as the next Bernie Madoff and NFTs and crypto and all of that. And the reality is, is that, yes, those tools can be used to prop up all kinds of nasty things like shell companies and money laundering and all of those things, too. But on the other side of the coin, they're extremely powerful tools for creating accountability and transparency, for really auditing the provenance of materials and supply chains. And for those reasons, they can be used as a totally new type of connective tissue for whole industries to build and instill and install and operationalize equity. And I think that people really need to understand that. And then for all the VCs out there, it's like you guys really need to think deeply about what you fund. I mean, I run my own portfolio and, you know, I'm seeing a lot of things that pop up where they're trying to use, you know, polygenic risk scores to to choose the right embryos that we're going to use for IVF and things. This is not a cool future. That is quite literally uh, eugenic. This is ushering in a brave new world of health disparities. Again, think about what you're funding. Maybe you guys don't read enough, but you can't just splash $20 million on something because it's going to make you money. Sometimes um, you need to question the ethics of the why and the how you're going to make money on something. That's your reputation and your legacy. History will remember your name in a specific way. Um, Not to point fingers, but. Well, I think it's good advice, too, because there's so many things you can invest in now and so many different branches we can go down that why choose the one that's morally corrupt or has that potential issue, right, where you can go with so many other positive things that are changing the landscape. Totally. And then, you know, in terms of the other technologies, we're really excited about extremely excited about the interface and the integration of synthetic biology to promote climate resilience. And we just started a whole new uh, incubator called Lab to Land. You'll be hearing a lot more about it. But these are approaching some of the most important questions and problems that exist now and then into our immediate future and our near future. And we are looking forward to providing solutions in that space as well. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled because that sounds exciting. And thank you for you know the in-depth look through I do have two more questions. These are more of the personal type, as we joked up front during the prep. These are the ones everyone has the hardest time with. But the first is the, you know, if you had one wish, what would it be and why? And then we'll get to the more fun one after that. Okay, this is kind of a cop out, but I wish for more wishes. But if I can't wish for more wishes. You can actually. It's I always hope that people will make that choice. And only one other person out of like 300 plus have ever chosen that. So kudos for for making that astute observation that that's a possibility. No problem. That would be mine. Uh, and then And then what's the next one? Well, what might you do with one of those wishes once you've wished for multiple wishes? 
Um, man, I mean, there's just so much potential there. I think, I think that I would wish for just real true opportunities to heal our planet, our atmosphere, our oceans. I'm a real, I really love nature. And as a Hawaiian person, um, I'm always deeply, deeply concerned about this, the state of our planet. And, um, you know, I would put all of my wish equity into that. Well, I like that one. And the good news is there are more smart people like you out there that care about the world. And while you're focusing on genomics and being an indigenous futurist, we have lots of other people like you that hopefully will help us crack this nut. But it is something we need to focus on, and it is something we need all of our wishes to go to. Final fun question related more to the island in Hawaii, and ironic that I'm asking you this, but I like to ask all the guests this, and that is, you know, you're stranded on a proverbial deserted island, or maybe just an island. Don't worry about the technology. You can bring one album with you. Which album would you pick and why? Easy question. I mean, and this is like, a pretty, I mean, this one, everybody should own this album. If you don't, shame on you. And that's Bob Marley legend. And uh, and vinyl. I would want vinyl. And then I would want the, the one where it's the tri-colored vinyl. Well, I know it probably was a little obvious. I was hoping in my heart of hearts that that might be one of your choices. <laughs> Just I get the vibe from you. And it's one of my all-time favorites. I know I discovered it back in college um, in earnest. This is back in the 80s. And uh, it, I beat the heck out of that, listening to it on vinyl. So great way to wrap up. With that, we will let you off the hot seat. This is Dr. Keulu Fox, uh, who is an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. He is one of the founders of the Native Biodata Consortium. We didn't get a chance to talk too much about that. Involved with Variant Bio, oatmeal eater, you know, runner, professor, good guy in general. Thank you so much, Keolu, for taking the time to, to talk with us today. Thank you. Mahalo for the opportunity. It's been lovely and uh, have a great day. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.